Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Sometimes needing new tyres can catch us by surprise. That's why tyre power gives you the power of zip pay and zip money. You can get what you need now, get back on the road safely and pay for it later. Terms and conditions apply. So visit tyrepower.com.au or call 13 21 91. Welcome to Aussies Only, our weekly look at the Australian players on tour. Hello and welcome to Aussies Only, your weekly Aussie tennis fix here at the first serve, all thanks to Latour Tennis. Now head over to latourtennis.com or at Latour Tennis on Instagram to check out their brand new tennis card game to outgrind your family and friends, rain, hail or shine. Choose from a variety of match formats to play for fun or put something on the line and go to battle. Perfect for playing at home, at your tennis club, at tournaments or on the road. Shuffle the deck because it's time to dig. It's called La Rally, and once again, you can head over to latourtennis.com or at latourtennis on Instagram to check that out. It's your host, Jed Zetza, and we've got a very special guest on the show this week. He's a good mate of my co-host, former pro Jake Eames, and Eamesy, I'll let you introduce the great man. Yeah, he's got a huge personality, great bloke, fantastic junior career, and also fantastic run on the HP Tour as well. And now more interestingly as well, he's transitioning into coaching. His name's Greg Jones. A lot of people just call him Jonesy. How are you, mate? Good, thanks, Seamsy and Jed. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me on your show. Uh, it's great to have you on, Jonesy. Really looking forward to this. You've had a very interesting career in life. And yeah, really looking forward to just diving into that. Do you mind telling us a little bit about how you were brought up? You were brought up in Sydney. What was the upbringing like? And did you enjoy being brought up there? Yeah, um, I was, as I said, brought up in Sydney, grew up in uh, kind of Manly and Mossman, um, back and forth between both of them a little bit. My, I'm an only child, so um, really close relationship with both my parents. And yeah, just had a pretty normal childhood, um, enjoyed going to school and was always playing sport right from a young age. I think I started playing tennis at like three um, and then stopped, gave up because I had to play with older kids and didn't like it. So I started playing again at eight. So sort of been in tennis my whole life. Yeah, you're also traveling at a young age as well, um, obviously doing very well nationally and then internationally as well. You're top five in the world ITF in 2007, awesome run, made a final of the French Open, semi at Wimbledon and the quarterfinals at AO. 191 matches out of 219 matches you won. What is that experience like in playing at a Grand Slam level through juniors? Yeah, that's pretty impressive. I didn't know that even those numbers. <laughs> Crazy good. numbers. Yeah, I didn't even know that. That's cool. Um, yeah, it was, it was an unbelievable experience. Look, I left uh, school at the end of year 10 to do distance education through, you know, through year 11 and 12. So I was pretty committed to my tennis pretty early on, training full time, you know, from the age of 16 and stuff. So I was very fortunate to start traveling around that, uh, that age, 16, you know, internationally quite regularly to Asia and uh, different ITF events. And I loved the, you know, the junior circuit was really cool because you were playing um, events, you know, they were 
girls and guys events. They're obviously a lot of um, people your age. And it really showed you the motivation because it was, you were playing in the biggest events. You were rubbing shoulders with, you know, Nadal and Federer and all these amazing players. Um, so it was pretty inspiring. It, re- it was sometimes a lot of pressure, but it was really encouraging and kind of made me want to play tennis more and more to reach that level as a professional as well. Jonesy, in your fourth professional tournament, you made a final in a challenger level event in Bernie in Tasmania. Do you mind taking us into that week and just what clicked for you at such an early time? Yeah, that, that, was, that was pretty wild, um, to be honest. It was, I had very little professional experience. I played at the Australian summer in the juniors and actually played qualifying of Australian Open. Had a really close match with Simone Bolelli. Um, and I lost 13-11 in the third set. So I was playing well, but I was absolutely exhausted. I actually had a week off before the tournament. And I think my old sort of friend and we were rivals, I guess, is Bryden Klein was, I think, supposed to get the wild card. So I was just having a rest week. He ended up getting into the Davis Cup team and I took his wild card. So a day before the tournament started, it was like, oh, you're a manger of this challenger. So I flew down to Bernie to play. And I remember I had a practice the day before with, well, you know, I think he's been on your show a little bit, Sam Groth. And for anyone who knows Grothy, he's literally the worst practice you've ever had in your life. So <laughs> I felt like I'd hardly hit a ball leading into that week. Something that I've talked a little bit about to players I coach now, how that sort of really set my expectations quite low. You know, I wasn't expecting too much from the week. And I went out there and just competed and, and tried my best, had a really good attitude. And lo and behold, ended up in the finals. So that was a very young, early, raw maybe beginner's luck as well, but yeah, definitely an experience for me. Yeah, that, that transition from juniors to ATP men's to is such a big leap, but there is something special about players that make top five in juniors and go deep in slams. They seem to have that level ready at a young age to transition quite quickly through the futures into the challenges. I know one of your dreams was obviously always to play Davis Cup. You did compete in the 2010 Commonwealth Games. How does that sit for you in your, your level of achievement? I mean, up there, I talk about two, you know, really special moments. One was when I played Australian Open. The other was definitely Com Games. I won a silver medal, as you said, and putting the medal around my neck and being up on the podium and having the national anthem playing, that was an amazing moment. Um, it was also really cool because I actually lost to um, Somdev Devarman, an Indian player, in the final, and it was held in Delhi in India. It's a very hostile crowd. There's about five, 6,000 um, Indian fans in there just screaming abuse at me from the get-go. So that was like, actually really, looking back at it, kind of uh, cool to experience. Not so much fun at the time, but yeah, that, that was definitely up there. I, I had an opportunity once to play, uh, to be the orange boy. So like the hitting partner of the Davis Cup team as well, once in Thailand. So that was, again, really, really cool experience and learned a lot as well. Like Leighton was in the team that uh, still playing when I was the orange boy there. In 2012, you made your Grand Slam main draw debut at the Australian Open. A tough assignment, getting drawn Alexander Dolgopolov, but tell you what, it went to five. It was an absolute classic. Do you mind telling us about that whole experience? And do you want to just tell us where you were when you found out you were getting that wild card? Yeah, <laughs> again, amazing experience. That's that's the match I was talking about. Um, there were two, you know, two of my probably fondest memories is the Com Games and then sitting out on, I played on Margaret Court, the old Margaret Court with the open roof and it was a bit of a jungle in there. Um, I was there that day. <laughs> oh, were you? Cool, yeah. I, I get the a lot atmosphere. of people actually saying that to me. A lot of people who watch that match who end up being like friends of mine later. It's, yeah. everyone kind of sticks out fondly, but in their memory. But I remember uh, sitting down before the match had even started and I'd, 
again, you know, talking about Grothy, we were, we were pretty good mates and played a lot of tournaments together. And he'd played the previous year and uh, lost to Marty Fish and was cramping after the first set because he was just pumped full of adrenaline. He was giving massive fist pumps and everything. I remember thinking to myself, I'll learn from Grothy's experience. I'll try and be really calm, really mellow during this match. You know, I've got to pace myself for five sets. And before the match had even started, the Aussie fans felt like they were on top of me singing Waltzing Matilda. And I remember trying to take a, a drink of water and like my hands were shaking and stuff. I was just so jacked up because it was just such an incredible atmosphere and opportunity to play in front of everyone. I, I remember also where I, he I heard that I got the wild card. Not that exciting, but it was just so last minute. And um, I think probably the Tuesday, Monday or Tuesday, the week before Australian Open, I was preparing to play qualifying because I didn't know if I was going to be in Maine or not. Um, and it was the day before qualifying was going to start that I found out. And I remember being incredibly excited and also a strange feeling of kind of relieved that I didn't have to be in qualifying, but also a little bit disappointed because I was pumped up to play the next day. So um, it was a very strange mix of emotions, but um, yeah, that was obviously an incredible opportunity. I was super thankful to have. Yeah. What an amazing experience and your senses must be so heightened, I guess, in that environment. You did play a majority of the time on the challenger circuit. Like if you don't mind me asking, like, how do you find current state of the challenger circuit and even how the game's kind of promoted at that level? A controversial question, Heemsy. <laughs> I don't think it's good. That's the bottom line. I think tennis in general has been promoted and marketed. Uh, that has improved a lot over the last, especially five, five years or so, even 10 years. That's getting better at the top level, but still not much promotion or, I don't know, organisation, if that's the right word, effort, money, energy put into into the challenger tour um which is crazy really when you think of other professional sports soccer or all, all team sports have just hundreds or sometimes thousands of players earning a living from the sport tennis we have a hundred or so guys a hundred or so girls making a living from it so if you're 200 or 300 in tennis to the regular person outside of a tennis fan they don't know you they don't you know i would play tournaments and people would ask me um you know if i had a ranking and stuff like that which is a bit frustrating when you're putting your heart and soul into everything for six days a week, you know, for 20 years of your life. So I, I would love to maybe even look to get into something like that, the sort of admin or marketing side behind tennis, not so much at the top level, but just to try and um, extend it to get sort of 300 players, men's and women's. For me, if you're playing qualifying of a slam, at least, that means you've got a chance to qualify and play against Nadal or Federer or Serena or whoever it is, you should definitely be earning a living from the sport. You're, you're committing your entire life to it, working incredibly hard. So I think you, you do deserve some rewards. Um, that's something I, I would like to change in the next 20 years for sure. Geez, I'd love to see you in a position like that. The reality of sport is entertainment. Have you got any ideas, I guess, a little bit around the challenger circuit and how, or how other sports have implemented, I guess, or built fan base at, at a little bit of a lower level? Yeah, definitely. Look, I think the, the blueprint is there for what you look at what has happened to Australia, Australian Open, you know, since I moved to Melbourne about 12 years ago now. Australian Open's come on leaps and bounds. Credit to Craig Tiley, credit to Tennis Australia. They've done an incredible job. I think the best thing they've done with it is they've turned it into an event. And I have so many friends outside of tennis that go to Australian Open because it's just fun to be there. Mm -hmm. And if they happen to see a little bit of tennis, then maybe you get a few new fans. 
oftentimes as parents they're enjoying themselves maybe you know having drinks in the garden watching a concert maybe their kids pick up a racket that's how you grow the sport I felt too often in the past tennis was just marketed towards people who like tennis and same issue for me at um you know some of the smaller events or they're not even smaller events maybe having a little radar gun where kids can go hit fast serve or something like that on, on the side really trying to make it into an event that happens to have tennis there as well I think that's what other professional sports have done so well you look at sorry baseball fans out there I hate baseball I have no interest in it every time I go to the states I always end up going to a baseball game because it's fun it's got music I can have a drink I can have some food I can talk to my mates and there's something to do and watch and you know what I know who Mike Trout is now because I went to the game and I, I saw him play so I think that's what tennis needs to take out of other professional sports books. It's a really great point you bring up there. And you mentioned you wanted to get into the admin side and maybe try and make the challenge tour better. For the fans, you've, you've named some great things there that they can improve. But for the players, how can they make players' lives more comfortable financially and also just the way they live on the challenger circle? I think you need someone like me because I don't think players often... You know, sometimes they're their own worst enemies. They don't understand or have a good understanding that they need to give up some things or sacrifice some things to be able to long-term get the sport to improve. A simple example is, I know for sure if I went to a challenge, I said, guys, you know, the fans are going to be able to talk throughout points. You don't, they don't have to be quiet. They're, we're just going to play music. We're going to make it fun for them. And you guys are going to play. Immediately, all players would kick up a big stink about, oh, you know, this is different to what we're used to. So... You need someone there to kind of get the message to them. Well, you know, during a soccer match, if everyone's loud, you don't notice it as much. When in tennis, everything's, you know, dead quiet. If somebody drops a, a pin, you know, it's, it's noticeable and it distracts you. So uh, I think they need to try and help the players understand why they're making different changes and what the purpose is and help the players to get on board and see that long term it will be beneficial for them. Then they'll, you'll have more buy-in from them. Definitely financially... Tennis, you know, again, like different to other sports, we don't have contracts. If you're injured, you don't get paid. And we don't get our flights and accommodation paid for, like, you know, a Melbourne victory probably uh, when they go to Sydney. I know the, the players aren't paying for their expenses. So whether there's more prize money or whether it's trying to reduce some of the costs or expenses or whether it's trying to link up uh, private sponsors a little bit more help in that regard, whatever the case may be, I'm sure there's some stuff that can be done. But the players need to take some responsibility as well to see the long-term benefits and kind of buy into it all a bit more. Yeah, and I think you made a great point there as well about that at that level, the players are actually good, even though they might be unknown. I mean, the, the standard itself is high. For yourself, you've played against Dolgopolov, Monfils. Can you tell us a little bit about those matches and who has been the toughest opponent for you? I would say the way I played, you know, I'm six foot three. I'm pretty aggressive. I've got a good serve. Uh, I'm not the best mover in the world. I wasn't super consistent. So for me, whenever I played well, I felt like I had a good chance to win. I felt like a lot of the time the, the match was on my racket, so to speak. Three times I felt like that was definitely not the case. And one was playing Bernard Tomic. I lost to him in the final of a um, challenger when he was sort of on his way up. Another time was against Nick Kyrgios. I played Nick three times in the year that he was, again, sort of on the way up. He was about 200 in the world, similar to me. We, we played twice in challenges, once in US Open qualifying. And the other person was Monfils. And Monfils was just, you know, so athletic. I felt like I couldn't get the ball past him. And his serve is so scarily underrated as well. It felt like anytime he wanted a point, he could just kind of switch on. And 
you know, when you serve 200 on the line out wide, you hit a ball as hard as you can on the other line on the other side, it comes to the net and you have a volley at your toes and then he passes you. It's a bit demoralizing, kind of left thinking, where's the blueprint? What's the plan now for this match? Um, I just got, basically had to try and keep it in and hope he got bored. And so that's a bit demoralizing when you're playing someone like that. Um, and, and similar with Nick and Bernie, they had so much feel for the ball, put the ball wherever they wanted. Um, those were definitely the three most, I would say, talented people I played against. Certainly. So, Greg, your beliefs on players turning to coaching after their career, do you mind telling us a little bit about that? Because I feel like a lot of people just think good players will make good coaches. Do you believe that's the case? You know, somewhat controversial. I definitely don't believe that, you know, just because you're a good player doesn't mean you'll be a good coach, especially players that are, you know, the game comes easy to them. Maybe they've been taught well at a, at a very young age and they haven't had to think too much about the game tactically. I think a lot of the times you'll find the coaches that didn't have weapons or they're more kind of grafters. They had to figure out how to play the game of tennis and they often you know, end up being better coaches in the long run. But first thing is when you're in an individual sport, it takes a lot of selfishness, a bit of ego to be driven all the time and succeed. And when you become a coach, that's the first thing that needs to go because it's no, no longer about yourself. It's about the player. Um, and I think that's the biggest impediment to really good players becoming good coaches. They, they kind of need to leave their ego at the door when they start coaching. Um, having said that, I do think there's a very good advantage if a former player comes with the right mindset, you know, has, a, has an open mindset, doesn't think they know everything, they still want to learn how to coach, learn more about the game, they can really impart good knowledge. And I think the main reason is with stories and anecdotes. So um, a lot of times I can tell people something or they don't really understand it. But when you tell a story and let somebody garner their own messages from it, that's when the information's transferred a lot better. So for example, I, I had a coach, um, Todd Martin, and Todd was four in the world. You know, he was coaching me for two years. He was four in the world and made semifinals of Wimbledon. During that semifinal of Wimbledon, he was up 5-1 in the fifth set um, on the old school fast grass. You know, he always lost to Sampras. Sampras had lost in this other semifinal um, against Richard Krychek. So he thought this was his moment. Um, and he actually, he lost, unfortunately. <laughs> he kind of choked the match away. Incredible. Guys, he was six foot six, incredible serve on this fast old school Wilmington grass court and he lost the match. So for, you know, when he was telling me those stories about what he was feeling, experiencing, it was so interesting. I was so engaged. I was listening to everything because it was, um, you know, the situation, the story that he was telling me. So I try to do that a little bit. I think initially when I was starting coaching, I was a little hesitant to talk about myself. You know, I wanted to make sure that I was focusing on the player, but as I've coached longer, I understand the power of these stories. One example that comes to mind is I have a, one player, I was encouraging him to be really positive and aggressive under pressure. He's an aggressive player and he was kind of backing off every time the match got close. I kept for a long time telling him, you know, got to try and be more aggressive, got to try and be more aggressive. One day we were on, at the courts and I just offhand told him a story about when I played against Kevin Anderson um, in Brisbane qualifying one year. And Kevin one seven six six four and the first set tie break i did i came off the court said to my coach i did nothing wrong I, I felt like i did nothing wrong and he said yeah you're right but kevin was just more aggressive than you you know he just went for more and and played the bigger shots under pressure anyway i i said this to the kid one time uh who i was coaching next match i go out and watch he was playing a guy he was feeling pressure to beat got to a third set tie break he won the match he walks off the court 
straight away, first thing he says to me is, you know, when I thought at the start of that tie break, I'm going to be Kevin Anderson, you know? <laughs> so it was a far more effective way, me just telling him an emotional story that kind of resonated with him and, you know, he's stuck in his mind a lot more than me just saying, be aggressive under pressure. So that's sort of what I'm trying to incorporate more and more into my own coaching. And I think that's the advantage that former players do have if they harness it in the right way and they come to coaching with the right attitude. I mean, that, that way of communication is you know, amazing, actually, when you think about it, to get players on board with what you're trying to promote and what you're trying to get them to do. And you mentioned there, Todd Martin. I know when you were younger as well, you worked with Wally Masseur. You've had this great knowledge, I guess, given to you by some really good coaches. How have these people shaped your beliefs in tennis or the way you see the game and now the way that you're coaching the game? Yeah, uh, massively. You know, I was super fortunate and lucky growing up. I got coached by, um, in my sort of, you know, really 12 to 16 years by John Ireland and Peter Tramacki a little bit as well, two former professionals. I had Wally Masur, who's coached, you know, the Strand Davis Cup team, worked with Leighton, Pat Rafter, everybody for two years. And then, of course, Todd as well for two years as well. So I also had stints with, you know, help from former professionals with Tennis Australia, like Josh Eagle, Todd Woodbridge, Mark Woodford. So I had all these amazing influences. Um, and I think it's interesting, uh, you know, uh, often I talk a, a little bit about American sports because I spent so much time in my own career being in American playing, but something's noticeable over there is in other basketball or uh, NFL or baseball, I'm sure as well, because I don't follow it that much because I just told you I don't like baseball that much. But <laughs> The coaching lineage, they talk about who you learnt from, who that person was taught by. And it's very apparent when somebody gets hired in the NBA, you know that they were an assistant under this person who used to be under this person. And I just feel like in tennis, that's not a very often spoken about thing, which is strange because it's such an important factor about where you get your information and how you get your information. Um, all those coaches I mentioned definitely shaped my tennis ideas and uh, knowledge combined with my own experiences from playing as well. Um, but I also think they, those couple of those people I mentioned, they're incredible people and they, they really were role models and they shaped the, the person I became as well, not just on the court. So I think that's something looking back on, I never realized at the time, but um, if you ask any person in tennis, what's Todd Martin like? They'll be like, oh, such a nice guy, incredible person. What's John Ireland like? Oh, he's the, he's the nicest guy ever. So I think they all had a, a hugely influential impact on me. So Jonesy, when it comes to your coaching and your philosophies, do you then take little factors and little um, key elements from each of those mentors and coaches that you've worked with in your playing career? Absolutely. I, I had um, John Ireland, my very young coach, said to me one time, you're going to hear lots of information and you have to be incredible at filtering it. So you need to hear all of the pieces of information that come in. You need to listen to all of them and then make up your own decision, which one's uh, applicable to you and pick the, the good bits and if the parts that you don't um, think resonate with you so much then you don't have to listen to those parts as well and he was even talking about himself of course the more you trust somebody and things work the more you're probably going likely to listen to them but I think from a young age I always had that um, mentality and I definitely try and encourage all young players ones I work with or even I don't ones who are listening definitely try and listen to everything and then you have to filter you can't do what everybody says you've got to try and pick and choose where you get your information from um that's that's for sure all those coaches i just 
mentioned, you know, Todd, I learned so much about specifically my slice improved a lot. My volleys improved a lot with him, you know, um, sorry, Todd Woodbridge, that is. And with Todd Martin, it was a lot of uh, ground, ground strokes, kind of footwork, leg work, learned from him. I'd say John Ireland probably could take credit for my serve. That was, that was him. He was, you know, teaching my serve every day. And, and so definitely each different person added something different to my game. Jonesy, while we're on the topic of actually coaching and, and the setup of, I guess, your coaching environment, Latour actually published a tale with the collaboration with you called I Hate Bruno Mars. It's a bit of a funny tale there in a challenge event in Mexico. It's a great story, but what wasn't published was, I guess, how you dealt with a loss and you had a bit of an interesting coaching setup at the time. Yeah, you know, we had a really good chat about that. Um, it was an interesting one because I'd been working really hard and not getting results for a few weeks leading up to it. Um, starting off with a, a younger coach, it was, it was David Bidmead actually, um, who was traveling with me trying to help me on tour. And I had this brutal loss. That's the story that you're talking about. Classic, you know, challenger tour tail, got robbed a little bit um, with some music coming on during important moments at an altitude match. If anyone listening, go to the Latour and read it up if you haven't already. Quite a funny, funny little tale. But the way we dealt with the loss was interesting. We kind of walked off the court and my coach, Dave, at the time, every other match we'd done a warm down. We'd gone through this cool down process and stuff. This match was so brutal and it had been probably three or four weeks in a row of kind of tough losses. Um, I remember just going straight off the court, seeing him. He didn't say anything. We just smiled at each other, put a head down, got back on the, uh, on the transport back to the hotel, straight back to the hotel, went to the bar, had a beer, and then got up and went, you know, went, got on with our lives. But I think the way that he dealt with it was so perfect in that moment because I think all the different players have different personalities. They have different ways of dealing with things. For me at that time, that's just what I needed, and he understood that. So I think if he had have pushed me to warm down or, or go the really straight and narrow route after that match, there would have been some pushback from me. We would have had a, a, probably a fight. It would have been um, more of a problem. The loss would have carried on for more time, maybe even another week or two. Um, and so that just kind of brought up an interesting, um, I guess, philosophy on, on coaching. And I think there's no one way to skin a cat, so to speak. There's many different ways. And you need to be um, understanding of the different personalities that you work with. Some people, they need to be regimented. They need that routine. They need the consistency. Other people, like myself, personality-wise, I need some fresh changes. I need to keep things different. Um, and as a coach, you need to understand that. I think the other thing that we were speaking about was, at the time, what I was finding difficult was all of the really... I guess, older, more experienced, knowledgeable coaches. A lot of them had families and all were very expensive to have on the road. And it wasn't something I was able to do, unfortunately, financially at the time. And the ones who were younger and were able to travel and come on the road and I could afford it, maybe didn't have the breadth of knowledge and experience as the older guys did. So I tried to counter that at the time by doing both. Um, so I had Todd Martin, who I'd be based out of Jacksonville with, um, getting a lot of the experience and knowledge from, from him there. And then at the time, Dave came over, came to Jacksonville with myself and Todd and, you know, learnt a lot about the game and, and about what Todd was wanting me to do and working on with me. And then used to try and go on the road and transfer that um, knowledge to me or keep the consistency of that knowledge coming to me while we were on the road. 
because it's a, it's a very different um it's a very different thing to be traveling with you know a 50 year old versus traveling with somebody your own age and we got into this whole conversation about people who can develop your tennis and people who can maximize what you've got in the road and i think they're two distinctly different um coaching styles myself i'm trying to be both because i'm you know i'm an idiot i'm a perfectionist i want to be the best I can be so I want to want to do both I think if you have a good knowledge of how to develop a, pl a player then hopefully you can transfer that and become help them maximize what they've got while they're on the on the road and on tour but it's respect to both jobs they're both very different things and they both have their own skills I think there's some coaches that would be great at developing player but if they went on the road it's an overload of information they're not helping to manage the players emotions relax them keep things clear and simple and likewise, I think there's a lot of coaches that would be great on the road um, with people, but maybe if you you know gave them a 14 year old to reconstruct a forehand, they'd probably be scratching their head. So, two very different ways of coaching. I was trying to overcome that by by having one of each at the time. Is that coaching? Because that coaching setup is very unique, and it actually sounds honestly unbelievable. Is that a coaching setup that a lot of players have on the tour, or was that something that was very unique to you i think yeah pretty pretty unique to me it was definitely intentional i think at the time people didn't realize that they didn't see me traveling with uh, you know working hard in jacksonville with todd they just kind of saw me traveling with who they thought it was a friend um but you know I was, i'm usually quite calculated with what i'm doing so it wasn't random i would highly recommend that setup for a lot of australian players i think overseas it's maybe a little bit easier because you're not away for so long. You don't have to pay your coach's expenses for five months in a row, for example. And it's also very difficult to find a coach that will travel on the road for five months straight. So say if you're American, you go play two or three tournaments, then you go back home. It's easier to bring your coach on the road without having to pay expenses for a long time. And I just don't think it's as difficult for people who aren't traveling as much. For mm -hmm. Aussies, 100%, if you're a young Aussie listing, make sure you have somebody who can continue making you better at tennis and then you definitely need someone with you at tournaments who can try and get the most out of you in on that specific week yeah it really sounds like you've just taken i guess the, the expert advice from someone like guess todd martin and feeding through i guess the the maximize on the road so you are getting the best of both worlds there do you think as a coach now and being in coaching do you feel you have to specialize in one or the other or do you need to try and be good at both or What's your, what's your opinion there? Great question. I don't think you need to be good at both. I think there are definitely coaches on tour with, you know, top 20 players. You'd be amazed at their lack of knowledge of the fundamentals of tennis. However, they're exceptional at understanding their player. There's, there's so much that more that goes into professional tennis than just being good at tennis on the court. You need to schedule well. You need to... Um, balance your kind of work life a little bit you need to have an understanding that's what I was talking about with Dave with me understanding that I've been going hard at it for four weeks and I just needed you know him to be my friend in that moment and, and not kind of be on my back about oh it's 30 15 at 5 4 why did you do this so I think you'll find a lot of tour coaches are very very good at managing their players emotionally their schedule helping them do little extras to improve their specifics while they're on the road. But, you know, as I said, you could put them with a 14-year-old, try and reconstruct a forehand, and they may not be the strongest at that either. So I don't think you need to be amazing at both. Of course, 
if you have an understanding, the more I, I said to someone the other day, coaching is like an iceberg. You need to have all of the knowledge beneath the, the water, but then show the player only the tip of the iceberg, what's above it. Otherwise, it becomes a bit complicated, confusing for them. So, of course, if the more knowledge that you have and understand that you have beneath the surface, you're probably going to make sure that the tip uh, above the water that you're, you're communicating to the player is, is spot on. So definitely the more knowledge you have, the better chance you have. But it's probably not essential to, to tell you the truth. Jonesy, so you've made the transition from being a player to now becoming a coach. Do you mind telling us a little bit about your pathway and what your current coaching setup is looking like? Yeah, sure. Um, for me, it was pretty uh, somewhat natural transition. The last couple of years of my playing career, I had quite a few injuries. I was spending some time at Kuyong doing some coaching there with uh, some young players and players who were trying to go to college or already at college coming back in the summer break. I was pretty fortunate when I st- first stopped playing. Caroline Wozniacki asked me to be her hitting partner. I'd known her for a long time. We're the same age, came through juniors together. So I did that gig with Eamsy actually, and, and she won Australian Open. So that was not a bad first uh, um, coaching experience, if you like it. Even though I wasn't coaching her, we were hitting partners, but we're still part of her team. And I think during that week, um, I got asked to do the job. I'm, I'm currently still in with Wesley Tennis and the high performance program there. And I'm still doing quite a bit of stuff with Tennis Australia uh, with some hitting partner things and doing a lot of, um, I guess, like coach de- personal development, coach development, doing a lot of the courses and programs, anything I can try and upskill uh, with my knowledge so or, or even share my knowledge with them as well. So that's, that's what I'm in at the moment. What the future holds, I'm not sure. I don't think anybody is after the year that we've had this year. But yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying it so far. Jonesy, mate. You've got a lot of fans out there, so we've got, got to delve into a few fan questions. This first one says, we hear a lot about players you know, sleeping on train station floors and travelling to all sorts of places. Can you explain you know, a little bit of your experience travelling on the tour? And I might just add in there as well that the scheduling part of the tour is a big reason why it makes it very interesting to be a tennis player. <laughs> yeah, I think... Um... You know, that's one of the beautiful things of our sport. We get to go all over the world uh, to the good, the bad and the ugly, to tell you the truth. Um, I've definitely had some amazing experiences. You know, I played a tournament in Bermuda one time, stayed at this insane hotel, uh, you know, all expenses paid. You know, the hotel was basically on the side of a cliff. So you'd go down for breakfast and have this amazing view of the tennis courts and then the ocean behind it. Other weeks, uh, you know, I've been to Kazakhstan. I've been to Uzbekistan. In in Uzbek, I... uh, took a taxi for eight hours by myself through mountains, you know, stuff that you only really see, you know, in our very fortunate world, we kind of tend to just see on the news really. And um, they were the experiences I was, you know, eight hour taxi ride, I think it cost 60 US dollars for that. So totally different world. And I, I really appreciated that. I thought it gave me a better perspective and understanding of the world and, and life and very appreciative of everything that, we get to enjoy here in Australia, best country in the world, might add. You know, as I said before, tennis is only a small part of being a professional. I feel like when you're a kid growing up, the most important thing is is tennis. And if you're good at tennis, you win. And when you get older, there's a lot more factors about can you handle being on the road for a long time? Can you choose the right tournaments, the right strength of tournament, the right court surface? You know, can you be smart with your scheduling and resist the temptation to play every week, but only play two or three weeks, then work in your game for two weeks, then play again? There's a lot that goes into it. And that's why myself, 
you know, I think I was a pretty good, I was pretty good at tennis. My tennis was pretty good, but if I could do it all again, I would have probably just tried to manage everything that I was doing a, a little better to try and keep um, more sort of work-life balance. I think I went through phases where I was very focused on tennis and kind of burnt myself out, which led to phases when my focus really wasn't there for a, a period of time. And definitely tournaments and scheduling. Um, I mentioned the junior pathway. I think one of the underrated things about that is just how much it inspires you to keep striving for that highest level. I think too early in my career, I was chasing points a little bit or whatever and going to tournaments that weren't particularly inspiring. You know, when you're playing in Kazakhstan with one person in the crowd, it's not really spurring you on to train harder and work harder and, you know, when it climbs to the next level, it's sort of just, you end up questioning what am I even doing here half the time? So yeah, I think the managing of a career from 18 years old onwards is perhaps equally, if not more important than the actual tennis on court. So just another fan question here. I must quickly say, we've been asking all the players that we've had on the show, where is the worst player that the tour has taken you? <laughs> and most of the players have come up with the same answer. Do you want to tell us yours? And then we can see if it's the same place. <laughs> so where's the worst place that played a tournament? Yeah, where's just where's the worst place the tour has taken you? Oh, geez. This is... Uh... I don't want to get anyone in trouble or honestly, a couple of the rural places in Uzbekistan were pretty rough. Is that, I'm guessing, was that the common answer? No, nah, China. China, <laughs> okay, yeah. China, sure. I, I played a couple, definitely some challenges there. To be honest, probably the players that you asked, they, they didn't go to Uzbek. That's probably why it's very fair. But um, yeah, I played a bunch in China as well. It's, it's different. It's difficult. It's uh, culturally a big change for uh, Australians. Um, and I think for me, particularly, the food's quite difficult, quite challenging. But again, it really depends what you're talking about. If you're talking about, you know, the ATP tour, they have amazing tournaments in Shanghai, Guangzhou, you know, all those places in the, in the cities. Some of the challenger level tournaments are in more rural areas. And yeah, you see some wild stuff there, that's for sure. <laughs> I won't go into too much detail. <laughs> Uh, the next question, Jones, I'm not sure exactly um, how you're going to answer this one. It could be a difficult one. Who is the most talented player you've come across that hasn't fulfilled their potential? Wow, that's, that's a hard question to answer. You know, to be truthful, it's unfortunate and sad, our sport a little bit. I think there are a lot of players that don't reach their potential for truthfully economical reasons. You know, you're traveling around the world, as we've talked about, paying all your expenses and, and not earning much in prize money or sponsors and that kind of shortens players careers i really wish that's part of my motivation to make the challenger tour financially better for players so we can keep players in the game for longer i've seen incredibly talented people never make it and kind of quit at 23 24 you know one that comes to mind uh who, who's really done well turned around was balashvili i saw him at a um challenger it was guys one of the best ball strikers i've ever seen he turned it around and, and went top 20 which was awesome to see um i'm I don't know if this is harsh, but one that comes to mind is actually Gail Monfils because he's had an incredible career, don't get me wrong, an amazing player, really great guy as well. But there is an argument to say that, you know, he, I think he won three out of the four grand, junior Grand Slams in one year. He was trying to do the junior Grand Slam, winning all four. He lost to Murray in the semis of US Open, I, I believe. So there's an argument to say 
you know, he he definitely would should have, would have, could have, whatever you want to say, he still can uh, win a Grand Slam. I think that he's sort of that level. When he's on, he's really one of the few that can compete with, you know, if Roger, Rafa, Novak play their best tennis, if Gail plays his best tennis, he can actually beat them. So maybe there's an argument there for him. Um, otherwise, I'd just be naming, you know, maybe players, unfortunately, that we all haven't heard of lost to the, the challenger circuit. I just wanted to ask, is the future of tennis in trouble with the big three still dominating the sport and other players who've had so much potential come up, haven't been able to break past them and players still are failing to get past that big three? Do you think that's an issue for the sport going forward? Firstly, great question. I really, I feel strongly about this. I disagree. I think part of, I remember myself growing up watching tennis the thing I loved about tennis was the change of surface and the variety of player. I loved seeing Gaston Gaudio win French Open. I loved seeing, you know, back in the day, Jonas Bjorkman make semifinals of Wimbledon, a double specialist at the time. Um, I loved seeing the different styles, the different game styles match up on different surfaces. And this is where we go back to marketing, how you market um, a product, which is tennis. Um, the focus became those guys, you know, those three guys were only showing those matches. And that's when I think actually tennis started to lose its way a little bit. I know that I, I feel that court surfaces changed to try and benefit them. I, I think French Open got faster to help Roger and Wimbledon got slower and high bouncing to help Nadal. I understand it's a business and having those four in the semifinals is how the tournament makes the most money through TV revenue and whatnot. But that for me hurt the game a little bit. Um, you had the same four players in the semifinals of every event. And I lost interest as a fan. I was kind of left thinking, why do I want to watch this match when I know what the result is going to be? I wanted to see Nadal go play on a really bad grass court and see if he and Ivo Karlovic are going to have a close match. I want to see Roger playing against um, Diego Schwartzman, really struggling on a slow, heavy clay court. Um, that was, for me, the, the fun of tennis. I'm, in a way, kind of enjoying watching these historically great players as the, they come, I guess, closer to the end of their career, seeing them compete against some of the up-and-comers because I'm excited to get that variety back in tennis. I'm excited to watch guys that I haven't seen play before, you know, new personalities. That's, that's the, the positive part for me for tennis. And again, it goes back to the marketing. I think one of the issues is like, you know, it's a Grand Slam or often India Wells, these type of big events they'll be showing, you know, Rafa or a top five, four guy, 6-1, 4-1, destroying somebody. Like, for me, that's such a boring match. And on the outside courts, two more, you know, lower-ranked, inverted commas, there's still 30 in the world. But they might be battling it out five all in the fifth set. I'm oh, sorry, five all in the, in the third set if it's Indian Wells or, you know, fifth set if it's a Grand Slam. And there's no coverage of that match. Like, for me, that's just poor marketing or whatever. The, the tour needs to show lots of different matches, especially the competitive ones in the early rounds, not just the top players beating down all the time. Um, you know, again, if I go back to comparing to other sports, I know the NFL, which I follow closely from my years traveling in America, they don't always show the best four teams every week on the Monday night game. Monday night football is typically the biggest game of the week. But they often have two cruddy teams playing against against each other because they understand the need to show a variety. Otherwise, you become dependent on the two or three players. And that's what we've gone into in tennis. I, you know, I understand tennis is completely dependent on those top guys. They bring all, all the revenue. But it's a little bit because that's the way that we sold tennis to the public. Mm -hmm. I think if 
we sold the sport and tennis to the public rather than selling three individual players, then they would have taken more of an interest. There'd be a better knowledge of uh, lower-ranked players. Their lower-ranked players would have a more opportunity to make money. And I think the sport as a whole would benefit. So I'm kind of, in a funny way, I, I really love watching those three guys play as well. And they've done so much for the game and, and they're historical. But I'm excited to see more variety. I want to see, I can't wait to see somebody other than them win a Grand Slam. I can't wait for somebody outside the top 10 to come back and, and win a Grand Slam on a really slow clay court. I actually saw the, the ATP release the schedule, a renewed schedule for this year. Mm. My first thought was French Open, I think, is in mid to late September, maybe. So for me, my first thought was, wow, it's going to be cold. It's going to be really heavy. It's going to be really slow. You know, I'd, I'd throw a little, my little uh, hat in the ring here and say that the person that wins French Open this year will be good in heavy, slow conditions. So, you know, that might not, when, when you say that, people often think of a grinder or, you know, defensive player. Sometimes it's the person that can hit through the slow conditions. So sometimes that, you know, you see a Robin Soderling or someone do really well when the, the courts are heavier. So I'm excited to watch that this year and, and maybe get a, a different result to somebody else winning it. Who can topple Rafa? Mate, I've, I've honestly heard this discussion so often about, you know, if it's good or bad for the sport that the top three are still dominating. And that is, that's honestly the best answer I've heard because you've, you've, I haven't heard that perspective before that it's actually the way that we're marketing the sport that is sort of creating, not even issues, but those scenarios where people, where I feel like we're relying on the big three, if that makes yeah. sense. That's, I just wanted to say that's, that's an incredible point of view and really something that it's a bit eye-opening to be honest the way yeah. you um the way you explained that yeah thanks and uh, i think I, I should stop talking about american sports you know we're in australia like i guess the, the better no, but it, it, it was relevant yeah but maybe the better comparison is afl you know I'm, i imagine they don't show hawthorne versus collingwood every week i'm, I'm guessing I, I don't follow afl i grew up in sydney obviously so wasn't following that closely but i've spent a lot of time in melbourne so i'm aware of it you know i'm sure in some of the night games you're seeing the you know, the demons or whichever other teams Carlton I think they're they're battling a little bit but you still see them on TV you know so it's kind of we need to learn from that and, and take that into tennis as well. Jonesy I could talk to you all day about <laughs> uh, your experience on the tour your ideas coaching philosophies such an intriguing insight just personally do you think you've fulfilled your potential as a player? I mean the easy answer is no the more Complicated answer is, you know, what is potential? Uh, if you're talking about my on-court skills, then no, I, I don't think I did. But you need, that's, you know, people talk about talent all the time. Talent can be an ability to be singularly focused and have dedication and be willing to sacrifice everything else. That's a talent in itself. So I think sometimes people see great ball strikers or tennis players and think well, they could be this, they could be that. I try and look at the other way. I see um, great mental strength from people and think, oh, geez, the sky's the limit for them. They could do anything with that kind of focus and, and effort. Yeah, so I guess when you consider all of the things, you know, I, I'm happy with what I did. I'm happy with what I did in the sport. I wish I could have done more. Um, but I guess I, at some point I kind of understood what level sacrifice that was going to take and the reward that I was getting back from the sport you know, it didn't, it wasn't kind of matching up for me. And especially, you know, you both um, mentioned that I did quite well, quite young. So I think, I don't think my maturity as an adult 
ready to travel and be on tour and find life work balance and maintain relationships when I'm on the road, all those things I wasn't quite ready for at an early age. And by the time I was in that department, I think I was already a bit burnt out from playing on tour for seven, eight years already. Mm -hmm. So to those listening, that's a great reason to go to college. You can kind of delay the agony of being on tour um, <laughs> while you're still kind of maturing physically and mentally. And then when you come out of college, you're a little bit more prepared and ready and, and energetic for the tour. Just before we let you go, Jonesy, I want to ask a question. This is sort of to both of you guys. I've been doing my research. I could only come across one match that you two played on the tour against each other. <laughs> it, was, it was at a Futures event. Jonesy chopped Eamsy 6-1, Was that... <laughs> was that, was that, that um, the, out, just outside of Brisbane? Toowoomba? Yeah, so it says here it was an, an Australian Futures event. Was that the only time you guys played on the tour? Imzy, was that in Toowoomba? Is that, am I thinking of the right place? I think so. Yeah, I tried to push that one out of my mind, mate. <laughs> just, just so you know, Jonesy, that's the second week in a row he's brought up that the guest has chopped me. <laughs> mate, you need to be more selective about the people you're bringing into these interviews. I think you need to, next week, you need to bring somebody in that you tailed up. I don't really remember that match that well, but... Neither do I. I know, I know, I, I think it was Toowoomba, and I know Jed... Jonesy has a big serve. He's actually two strengths to serve and return, which is obviously a huge weapons in today's game. Can't break him. And then oh, I have got the biggest serve as well. So, and he's got good returns. So it really was a shocker for me. <laughs> yeah, shocking matchup. <laughs> I, I think I remember that match and I remember I played quite well. And yeah, I think I was a terrible matchup for Eamsy. I, I was ahead of my time. I should have been playing nowadays, you know, where it's all kind of first strike tennis. That's sort of what I was doing back then but the courts were too slow it was like i was playing on sandpaper and i couldn't get any um purchase of the server return so i would i'd love to go out there and play you know 2021 aussie open it's not too late give me a wild card let's go again run it back the comeback the comeback yeah no it's definitely too late for me as a player but um yeah thanks for bringing that one up jed i'll i'll just remind you know that that's ticked my memory and i'll definitely give Eamsy lots lots of stick for that the next few times i catch him as well yeah, cheers for that, Jed. Jones, it's been an awesome chat. Personally, I guess from both of us, from Jed as well, I think it's great that the game has got an ex-player like yourself involved in coaching now and looking to help develop the next generation. As you said before, you never know where you'll end up, but uh, we wish you the best of luck, mate, and really appreciate you coming on and spending the time to chat to us today. No worries at all. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much for having me. And I uh, love your work, love what you're doing with the show. Keep it up. Cheers, Jones. Yeah, that was really insightful and certainly looking forward for our um, listeners to hear this interview. Thanks, mate. Thanks, Jed. Cheers, Andy. Thanks, guys. And thank you for tuning into this week's edition of Aussies Only. All thanks to Latua Tennis. Now, once again, head over to latuatennis.com or at Latua Tennis on Instagram to check out their brand new tennis card game. Choose from a variety of match formats to play for fun or put something on the line and go to battle. It's perfect for playing at home, at your club, at tournaments or on the road. Shuffle the deck because it's time to dig. Now make sure you head over to thefirstserve.com.au to listen in on any previous episodes of the show that you may have missed. We've caught up with some very special guests and make sure you check those out. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you next week on the next edition of Aussies Only. You've been listening to Aussies Only, part of the First Serve, your home of tennis. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? 
Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi-finals. all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.